Hi, this is Steve with Thresher Media Group. Welcome to When You're Ready to Listen. This podcast is dedicated to exploring the truth about God, things you may not have understood, may not have been taught, or quite frankly, had a very hard time believing. And since our entire relationship with God rests on believing, it is important we learn how to separate the truth from the many lies and fictions that abound within the religion of Christianity. So when you're ready to listen, tune in and discover a pathway to freedom, encouragement, life, and hope. Episode 76, Revelation 9, verses 20 through 21, part 6. We have been discussing this issue of our willingness to believe. We have discovered that so many within the household of God, due to their hard and fast commitment to the work of their hands, are worshiping demons and simply will not repent, nor will they repent of their idolatry. In our last podcast, we discussed their idols of gold and silver. In this podcast, we'll address the idols of brass and of stone and of wood, and we'll finish out this amazing chapter. Idolatry, Revelation 9.20. They did not repent of the idols of gold and of silver and of brass and of stone and of wood, which now can neither see nor hear, nor walk. Brass and stone. The brass and stone both speak of judgment. Brass or bronze covered the altar of burnt offering upon which the sacrifices for sin were made. The law of God was etched in stone, indicating its permanence and inflexibility. And those who violated the law of God were stoned to death in judgment. Consider that the religion of Christianity exists, thrives, and finds its existence because of the brass and the stone. The law, your law, my law, anyone's law brings forth judgment and condemnation for sin, which brings forth division and separation between those who are better at hiding their sin and those who are relatively honest about their sin or those who get caught in their sin. This is nothing short of idolatry. Forgiveness. I don't think that word means what you think it means. Even though Jesus died for the sins of the world, such that there is no longer an issue of sin between God and man, just an issue of relationship which comes through believing, the issue of sin rules the communities of Christianity. On the surface, we are told that Jesus died for our sins and those of the entire world, and that if we say the magic prayer, he will forgive us of all our sins. But in practice, it seems that forgiveness does not mean what we think it means. Jesus may forgive our sins, but for some reason, other believers, especially religious leaders, do not believe he really does. And so they do not. They tend to function as if they have a higher authority, a greater seat of judgment than Jesus does. This is blatant idolatry and an exaltation of the me. Believers quickly learn that in real life, forgiveness means that if we sin in the right areas, we will be judged, condemned, and outed, and if necessary, canceled. And so most everyone within Christianity learns to hide things and deceive so as not to get in trouble. Is that discretion just wisdom or a sad result of our idolatry? All of us were born into sin. It is who and what we are. It is not simply what we do. The sinful acts that we do are just the fruits of the sinful tree, so to speak, that is corrupted through and through. Hence the need for God to overtake us and possess us with the new creation, thereby trans us. But that is a big process that takes time, and it is a process that is largely out of our control 
except with regard to our willingness to let God do what he needs to do to transform us. Even getting to the point of willingness is a big deal and a big effort on his part to convince us that we need more of him. However, instead of teaching people why we can bet our lives on Yahweh and give him permission to invade our lives and conquer our enemies and how to bet our lives on Yahweh to now be believing in his name and choosing to be that little child, most of our religious institutions are instructing people that sin is the problem and that we are to fight sin. However, people have been fighting sin for centuries upon centuries with the same success that a cat would have if they were trying extremely hard to bark. That is just not an evolutionary jump that can be made. The two blind spots. Though God in his mercy chooses not to rain down judgment for every bad thing that we do, it's almost guaranteed that other people will. I sure have. I've cloaked myself with brass and picked up far too many stones. In terms of our idolatry of brass and stone, there seems to be two blind spots that we collectively possess across the span of the religion of Christianity. Number one, blind to what Jesus has done and is doing. We do not understand that we are Christ's ambassadors who have been committed the word of reconciliation. The ministry that he has chosen to be giving us is the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ, now reconciling the world to himself, choosing not to now be counting their trespasses against them. In fact, he made him who was knowing no sin, sin on our behalf, so that we might choose to become the righteousness of God in him. The work God did was not a past work, but it's a work that continues into our now. Therefore, our sin is not ours to bear. And if God is not now counting our trespasses against us or against others, then why do we? Number two, the fire is necessary. If we want to walk with God, we must go through the fire at varying degrees of temperatures throughout various times in our lives and have the dross of our lives, the sin of wrong belief and unbelief, and all its associated behaviors come to the surface so God can expose them and teach us why we do not need them anymore. There's no way around this journey through the valley of the shadow of death, or said another way, through the narrow pressure-filled path that leads to life, the path which so few find. It is only if we hold firmly to what Jesus has done and is doing, not now counting our sins against us, that we will make it through any time that we spend in the fire. The fire will bring forth our sinful behavior. It's the very purpose of the fire. And if we cannot get past our sin and understand what God is doing, we will be buried in shame, guilt, and remorse, and once again bow before our idols of brass and stone. It is through the fire that Yahweh pops our bubble of delusion, our belief that we are mostly good and that we can control in some measure the outcomes of our life. He dismantles our pride. He shines his spotlight on our dysfunctions and coping mechanisms. He reveals our helplessness. He shows us the worthlessness of our religion. And he shows us what we really believe about him and about ourselves. His goal of it all is to convince us once and for all that depending upon ourselves, our coping mechanisms, our self-protection, and our wisdom is inane, foolish, and a complete waste. This process is very difficult because many of the core beliefs to which we hold are wrong beliefs, 
were formed at a very early age, as were many of the self-protecting mechanisms we put in place to protect us from harm and trauma. Those very same self-protecting mechanisms that ironically work to perpetuate the cycle of harm and trauma. For most, especially those whose childhood was filled with trauma and pain, this all happened when they were very young and their adult minds do not easily connect with what is happening deep within them. It is through the fire that we whirl and turn like a mess until all those unseen mechanisms and underlying beliefs about God, about ourselves, about others, about life, many of which we are not even aware, come to the surface and are exposed. This process gives us the opportunity to learn why we should stop trusting self and all that our flesh convinces us is true and instead be willing to start trusting ourselves to Yahweh to be for us who he says he is, even though everything we believe and all that we have gone through seems to militate against all that God says he is and what he says we are to him. But when this process brings forth the dross and out comes all manner of sin, it should be viewed as an exciting time and an opportunity for that person to be changed into his image. However, we tend to bring those very same people to the altars of judgment, and instead of loving on them and encouraging them, there we stone them, so to speak. Often our stones are thrown in retaliation because they have deeply hurt our feelings and that they shamed us. They shamed their family. They shamed their church. They shamed the ministry. They shamed Christ. They betrayed us and others and are no longer to be trusted. Therefore, instead of seeing it all as an opportunity to love them, and show them the amazing beauty and mercy of God's process, we shame them and condemn them. This is far too often the occurrence, even among those who choose to come alongside the fallen brother or sister. Instead of rejoicing that God is doing a work, we dwell on what they have done or are doing. Therefore, we demote them, fire them, out them, cancel them, separate from them, build our boundaries, or put them under some sort of disciplinary accountability process to make sure they do not fail us in the future. Maybe we wait until they once again prove themselves to be trustworthy and faithful. But when you think about it, it's all self-serving through and through, motivated by our pain and our wounds and not by God's agape love. Jesus tells us not to judge because no one is righteous, not one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And no one is in the position to sit in judgment of sin. The terrible but amazing truth is that he alone is good. He alone is righteous. He alone can judge righteously, for the source matters. The source is everything. Think about it. If people truly believe that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, then why do we condemn people when they fall, when they sin, when they act according to their nature? On what grounds do we condemn them if God is not condemning them? When are we going to stop substituting ourselves for God? and idolizing our own judgment and our own view of righteousness as if it is something we have earned versus something we are given. The law we are to live under is the law of faith, expressing itself in agape love, not a law of works. Thus, true Christianity is not about doing it right and not sinning. That is something out of our control. Jesus alone is the just and justifier of the one who is now having faith in Jesus. We are not entitled to that role. A person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law, whether that is your law, my law, their law, or the law of God. 
For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Likewise, the one who is not now choosing to live according to the works of the law, but is now believing in him, that is now justifying the ungodly, his faith is now being counted as righteousness. Yet though these concepts and words are clearly expressed in the codex, though distorted in our translations, we still choose to judge people for their sinful behavior and stone them without regard to what God is doing, why he is doing it, when he is doing it, and that he is doing it. Ironically, with every stone we toss, we prove that we are the transgressors of the law, for we are not now believing that he died for the sins of the world and that he alone is the justifier of people. In a twist of irony that is so sad, the ones who get judged and stoned are often those whom God deems to be righteous, those who have learned or who are learning to stop relying on their own goodness, but only on his. Wood. Wood is an emblem of the salvation of humanity, Noah's Ark, the Ark of the Covenant, the cross, and the hyssop branch. This is going to sound like blasphemy because of how we have been conditioned, but God's chosen emblem of salvation, the wood, has become a source of gross idolatry. Why? Because we fail to understand and accept that what Jesus did on the cross set us free from the law of sin and death. But as discussed before in the context of communion, we believe we must continually go to the cross to receive redemption, bowing our heads and bending our knee at the foot of the cross in contrition over our sin. We believe that those who failed us and have been exposed in the sin must do the same, but ever more intently and sincerely. Yet the Spirit commands us to now choose to consider ourselves to now be dead to sin, but now being alive to God through Jesus Christ. The wooden cross served its purpose. It did its work. And we are to no longer look at our life through the lens of sin, failure, shame, and guilt, but through the lens of one who is now being alive to God through what Jesus did. Anything less is an idolatrous and blasphemous understanding of what Christ did on the cross. It is a different gospel with a different Christ, and those who teach it are anathema or cursed. The idolization of the cross. We are constantly reminded that we put Christ on the cross. It was our failure. It was our fault. For it was our sin that nailed him to the wood. Yet that is not even a subtle lie. It's a big, fat, gross, stinky, disgusting, and terrible lie that binds people in guilt, shame, and some mistaken sense of duty that they now owe Jesus. In fact, this lie is what keeps people so bound to the work of their hands. It was his fault all along. The truth as expressed in the Codex is that Jesus deserved to go to the cross, and he knew it. It was his plan A all the time, from before he laid the foundations of the earth. As the Spirit said in the book of Hebrews, it was only fitting that he is the one who suffered. In fact, after his resurrection, Jesus himself said that it was necessary that the Christ suffer as he did. After all, he is the one who created evil in the first place and set this whole dynamic in motion. Remember, he alone is the Alpha and the Omega. He alone takes the responsibility. Yes, Yahweh created evil. And that just does not come under the umbrella clause that all things are from him and nothing has been created that he did not create, which on its own should be enough. 
But in the book of Isaiah, he specifically says, I am Yahweh and there is no other. The one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being or literally peace, shalom, and creating evil. I am Yahweh who does all these. Forget what your translations say, as most translate evil, which in the Hebrew is the word ra, as calamity. It seems the translators did not have the stomach to tell us the truth. There is an entirely different Hebrew word for calamity, which is ed or id, ed. The meaning of the Hebrew ra, ra, is unambiguous, evil, wicked, or bad. It was Adonai, the ultimate despot, who allowed, nay, directed, one who is evil, whom he created, to freely roam through the garden. As Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts, or the commander of the angelic, Yahweh granted the serpent of old permission to come and speak to Eve. If we follow the book of Job motif, he might have even been the one to suggest it. Have you considered my servant? We have learned that the name Yahweh Sabaoth confirms that the serpent could not have done anything that his master Yahweh Sabaoth did not approve of beforehand. That is clearly communicated in Job 1 and Job 2. The serpent of old, Satan, was sent out on a mission. Moreover, Yahweh created Eve to be the weaker vessel, spiritually vulnerable. And since all things are from him and through him and to him, yes, all things, then so was this choice of Eve to take of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Yahweh knew what she would do when confronted with this temptation. And still, he sent in the serpent. In fact, the passage that speaks of it being fitting for Jesus to be the one who suffered on the cross, in effect, asserting that it was not fitting for us to be on the cross, it says, for whom are all things and through whom are all things. For he works all things according to the counsel of his will. This was his decision. This was his wisdom. This was his will. The plan of the Father. Our sin did not put Jesus on the cross. The plan of the Father to find a bride for the Son is what put Jesus on the cross. We were conceived in sin, and so we sin because sin is infused into our very nature. In fact, as long as we are in these bodies of flesh, it is impossible for us not to sin. Again, sin is not about what we do. It is about who we are, separate and distinct from the new creation. Every thought, every breath, every movement that does not derive from the divine, from the only one who is good, is sin. As awful as that sounds, it was all to accomplish Yahweh's beautiful purposes in finding a true lover for the Son. This might come as a shocking revelation, but it is only because of this sin that we were able to understand how beautiful and glorious and loving God is, as we came to see the contrast between our ways and His ways. It was because of sin that we even recognized our need for Him. It was because of sin that we came to understand that there is no better option and no better way. It is because of sin that we were able to exercise our right to choose the son above all else, the choice that makes us his lover. It is because of sin and what Jesus did on the cross that we could choose to love him and him alone with our heart, mind, soul, and strength. It was because of our sin that we came to realize that it is better to live as a son 
in unrestrained freedom, bearing no weight for our sin than as a slave in the household of God. Sin is just a tool. Sin is just a means, a device, a necessary tool. And it was necessary to give us the awareness of our need to, number one, join the household of God, and number two, choose to become a chosen son of God. And the wooden cross was necessary to now set us free from the power which sin and death had over our lives, freeing up all mankind from its bondage. Remember, Jesus did not just die for the sins of believers, but for the sins of the entire world. Sin, however, was never intended to be our permanent master, just something that helped us along the way to find our true love. But since sin produces death, and he came to give us life in abundance, what he did on the cross enables us to now choose to consider ourselves to now be dead to sin, but now being alive to God through Christ Jesus. What a glorious truth. It's time to stop idolizing the cross and be thankful for it. Every time we see the cross, we should not be thinking of our sin, our failure, or our lawlessness that put Jesus on the cross. Rather, we should be filled with praise and thanksgiving that our God concocted such a marvelous, complex, and mysterious plan so that we might gain the power to exercise our right to choose to become little children of God, to choose to become the righteousness of God in Christ, heirs of the promise, who are in love with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. No idols. At the very end of 1 John, the Spirit closes the letter with this little phrase, Little children, you are commanded to keep yourselves from idols. Thus, we are not to be like those who refuse to repent of the works of our hands, so as not to worship demons and the idols of gold and of silver and of brass and of stone and of wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. We are to abandon our idols and stop worshiping demons and let Yahweh be to us all that he says he is. See, hear, walk. The Spirit makes the point that our idols are so ridiculous and worthless that they do not now see and cannot even be made to now hear or now walk. It's all rendered in the present tense. In other words, when it comes to what we need in our now, these idols have nothing to offer us. In contrast, Yahweh is the I Am, and He will be our I Am if we want Him to be and let Him be. His desire is that we let Him be our everything in our now. Talk. Did you notice what was missing from this list? See, hear, walk? Our idols, whatever they may be, cannot be made to see, hear, or walk, but they can be made to talk. This was an extremely specific exclusion that is not included in other parts of the Codex that speak of idolatry. This is an exclusion that on the one hand speaks of a now experience, and on the other hand, a foreshadowing of what is to come. Remember, with the Spirit, everything is intentional. Our now experience. By now, we should know that behind our idols are the demons we worship. And boy, do they talk. They seem to always be talking. Think about those voices in your head. You're a failure. You're a sinner. You're unlovable. You're not worth it. You've been abandoned by God and by others. Your past will follow you into the future. You will never escape your sin. You should just quit. You're the problem. Others are the problem, and you're the victim. And so on and so on and so on. 
in each area of our life that has not been conquered by grace through faith, the voices do not stop. They ring out endlessly and they torment us. In fact, in a parable, Jesus once referred to the spirits as torturers or literally in the Greek, the tormentors. And that is sure what it feels like when we are bludgeoned with the enemy's flaming arrows of lies. The only way to silence them and to find protection is to be willing to let Jesus take over territory in our soul. And that requires the fire. That requires crucifixion. That requires us to walk that very difficult path of trouble that leads to life. A foreshadow of what's to come. One of the big end times dramas that will occur is that the false prophet, the beast sidekick, tells the people who are now making their abode in this world. Yes, even in the day and age of John through today, it's in the present tense. They are to make an image of the beast. And it was given to the false prophet to give breath to the image so that it would cause the image of the beast to speak, to talk. This supernatural event will likely seal the deal for many who might have been on the fence as to whether the beast is the Christ, the Messiah for whom they have been waiting. And seduced by this deception of the image given the ability to talk, they will become followers of the beast. More on that when we get to Revelation 13. The inevitability of idolatry. Despite the pain, the intense suffering, and the slaughter of millions, people still hold tightly to everything and anything that is not Yahweh. This foolishness will sadly continue, and those who worship will become as blind and useless as their idols. Psalm 115, verses 3 through 8. But our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold the work of man's hands. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. They have noses, but they cannot smell. They have hands, but they cannot feel. They have feet, but they cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with their throat. Those who make them will become like them and everyone who trusts in them. What a powerful statement. Those who make idols will become like them as their sensitivity to life becomes dulled by the darkness of idolatry. Spiritually, they become deaf, blind, mute, and crippled, unable to truly help anyone. And yet, this is the condition of Christianity today. Our Western culture that once embraced Yahweh and his principles for life are turning to paganism at a speed that is unthinkable. Since the 60s, the Western nations have progressively chosen not just to abandon God, but to vilify him and to do whatever it takes to keep him out of our lives. There was a time when people looked to Christianity to be their guide, their rule, and their hope. But over time, the religion of Christianity has proven to be empty, powerless, hypocritical, and filled with little more than judgment and condemnation, brass and stone, coupled with a freaky obsession with sin. In that regard, the people of this world figured that their idols of fun and freedom are far better than the ones they served in Christianity. And that is a big part of what is leading to the great apostasy. Murders, sorceries, immoralities, and thefts. Revelation 9.21 And they did not repent of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor of their immorality, nor of their thefts. Regardless of the intense invasion of the demonic into our natural lives, 
These people will still hold to the same demonic spirits that have provided them what? Their whole lives. Nothing. But for some dark and twisted reason, they will not let go. And in accordance with the falsities and lies of these demonic beings, these people also do not repent of their self-serving, immoral, and predatory behavior, their murders, sorceries, sexual immorality, and their thefts. Murder. Murder will become a common thing. People will be so self-centered and focused on surviving that they will probably just take out anyone who appears to be a threat. Furthermore, governments will be in such complete disarray that their ability to curb the violence will be extremely limited. Their power will be broken, and it will be mad chaos. Even today, we see this level of violence increasing in our cities. It is alarming how quickly things have turned to seemingly random acts of brutality, aggression, and cruelty. Sorceries. The word translated as sorceries comes from the Greek word pharmakias, where we get our word pharmacy. To say this in another way, they would not repent of their drug use. Down through history, people have used drugs to connect themselves to the spirit world. As such, drug use is a part of many pagan forms of worship. For instance, with sects of Hindus and Buddhists and certain Native American tribes. And even in the blend of these pagan systems that we see throughout Western societies that are attempting to be enlightened. With that said, the spirit seems to be indicating that drug use does not have to be connected to a form of worship to cause a person to be connected to the demonic. Apparently, these two things are innately interconnected, drug use and the demonic. And it should be clear that this connection is not dependent upon whether the drug is classified in our respective communities as illegal or legal, prescription-based or not. The connection is there. Now, the Codex does not clarify which drugs or pharmaceuticals fall into this category. Therefore, it's advisable that each person seek out the opinion of the Holy Spirit and not the opinion of man and seek out what he has to say. Man can justify anything, but we are promised that the Spirit will lead us in all truth if we seek him and if we let him. With that said, if drugs have any of us in the bondage of addiction, or if they are used in any way to connect us to the spiritual realm, then there's a good chance that our use of drugs is intertwined with the demonic. Yet sadly, those who have chosen to now be abiding in this world will not repent of their sorceries, for they cannot receive the spirit of truth. Sexual immorality. Then there is sexual immorality. They will not repent of their sexual immorality in the Greek pornea, where we obviously get our word pornography. Traditionally, pornea encompassed all forms of unauthorized sexual activity, meaning sexual activity outside of the covenant of marriage. This intimates that during the end times, as it already is in these last days, marriage will no longer be honored or recognized as holy. Rather, it will be a free-for-all when it comes to sexuality. People will be trying to survive and probably seek to take comfort sexually in anyone they can find. And in so doing, they will abandon all notions of purity and righteousness. And for those in the household of God, they'll likely find all sorts of different ways to justify their sexual immorality to themselves. Thefts. And finally, they will not repent of their thefts. Clearly, there'll be so much destruction that there'll be plenty for an immoral person can take from those who are weak. Their conscience will be dull and they'll have no barometer for right and wrong. It will all be about survival. There'll be no respecting personal property or emotional and relational boundaries. Rather, it'll be a riotous grab for 
all anyone can get from another, whether the taking is of tangible items or elements of our heart and soul. The moral of this dynamic can be found in Proverbs. Though you pound a fool in a mortar with a pestle along with crushed grain, yet his foolishness will not depart from him. They will be pounded over and over with tragedy and death, but their foolishness will not depart from them, and they will not repent of these things. Repent. Now, when God says repent, he does not mean it in the sort of way that the word is generally understood in the religion of Christianity, where we feel bad, shameful, and after we have performed an adequate amount of penance, we tell God that we are sorry and will not do it again. That is just foolishness. To repent means to have a fundamental change of beliefs such that this change plays out in our emotions, our thoughts, and our behaviors. Accordingly, we find ourselves doing the opposite of what we were doing before. This sort of change, however, is not a result of striving and trying so very hard not to sin and not to do it wrong. Rather, this change will be a natural expression of our chain beliefs, our willingness to bet our lives on the name of Yahweh and all that he says is true about himself and all that he says is true about those who love him. True repentance is a co-joined work of the Spirit of God and our willingness to humble ourselves before Yahweh like a little child, embracing what he says we need in this life. Repentance is always about what we believe because our beliefs alter our emotions, which alters our thoughts, which alters our behavior. For example, if we believe we are not safe and God is not going to keep us safe, then we will continually turn to our idolatry to find protection. Thus, repentance would be to let the word of God transform what we think about God, what we feel about our God, and ultimately what we believe about our God, whereby we become fully convinced that we belong to him and that he takes care of his possessions. But the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent. Trumpet number six revisited. Given that according to the code, the number six is the number of mankind, it should not surprise us that this sixth trumpet resulted in the slaying of one-third of mankind and the hardening of the hearts of so many others who refuse to repent. To get a free download of the full written transcript with all the scripture references footnoted, please go to threshermediagroup.com. That is T-H-R-E-S-H-E-R mediagroup.com. This is Steve with Thresher Media Group. When you're ready to listen, tune in. <laughs>